triune God, unlike us, unfathomable, full of mercy, glory, and joy. We praise you for allowing us to come this morning to receive the blessing of your word. We ask that this time would please you, Heavenly Father, as Christ goes forward before your people for us to savor. Please extend to us the mercy of your providence that we might hear Christ lifted up with hearts of faith. Gracious Savior, we ask your name to be honored by what goes forth and that might reflect your great worth. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would join yourself to this word so that it might accomplish in us all that you intended to do. Great God, please work towards the furthering of our treasuring of Christ and our joy in him, we pray. Amen. Well, it's been some time since I've stood up here, and it's been even longer since I've dealt with the book of Philippians with us. So let's take a moment and review where we are in the book. Philippians is a letter to the church. We saw that last time, even in the introduction, the first two verses. Paul addresses the church and the elders. So what he has to say in this letter is not just for uh, what we might think wrongfully think as the lowly members of the church, but it's for everyone. Everyone needs to hear what Paul has to say. And it also addresses one central key point, which is really in verses 8 through 11, where he, telling them how he yearns for them, says in verse 9, that it's his prayer that their love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so Paul's great desire is that the church would grow in its affection for Christ, in love with knowledge and discernment, that they might approve excellent things, that they may be pure and blameless on the day of judgment. And all of that comes not from their own efforts, but it's what Christ grows in them as he dwells in them. And this is going to be important as we address the next section of the text. Uh, the preaching text this morning is Philippians 1, 12 through 18a. I know that's going to sound kind of funny, but we're going to end halfway through 18. And so the, the, the text is going to break down into three points. The first is gospel preaching in relationship to circumstances. Gospel preaching in relationship to circumstances. That's verse 12 through 14. The next will be gospel preaching in relationship to faith. Gospel preaching in relationship to faith, verse 15 through 18. So gospel preaching in relationship to circumstances and then to faith. And then finally, gospel preaching in relationship to joy. That'll be verse 18. So let's go ahead and turn to our first point this morning, gospel preaching in relationship to circumstances. Uh, when I first picked up the preaching text for this week, I created, well, I, I, I did the great sin that is so often uh, the case in Bible reading, and that is I assumed that this portion was on its own, isolated, completely separate from what came before it. And when you atomize the text that way, uh, what will happen is uh, you will incorrectly treat this section as 
nothing more than a missionary report back to a church. And that's not just the case. See, Paul, we assume when he starts a new section like this, I know the ESV says, I want you to know, that's, that seems to indicate a new section. In many other translations, it says now, which is a good word to cut off what you said before and start something different. But Paul is, Paul is like a master baker. Um, I love wedding cakes. They're, they are gorgeous pieces of art. And uh, when you look at the wedding cake from the outside, it's a singular hole. But if you took it apart, you could clearly see the layers in it. And that's how Paul writes his letters. There are clear layers that are throughout, but it's actually part of a singular whole that must be treated that way. And so we must remember what I already have summarized as the key thrust of this book. Christ dwelling in his people, growing in them fruits of righteousness that they might savor him and live for him. That's going to be important as we deal with this next section. So, uh, let's look then at uh, verses 12 through 14 here. I think we uh, can all say that there is one thing that stands out immediately, which is Paul is communicating something back to the church at Philippi. Uh, they have shared in his sufferings, that's Philippians 1.8. And in doing so, uh, there is a bond that is formed between believers in suffering And so they have a great concern for Paul. And they've expressed that somehow to him. Now, we don't know how that came to be. Uh, It could have been that there was a letter that precedes this one that we don't have, that the Spirit decided was not important for us to have. Uh, It could be just the messenger showed up and showed concern for uh, what was going on as a representation of the church. But however, we do, however it happened, we know that these are a people that are highly invested in Paul's ministry. Uh, if you read later on in the letter in Philippians 4, 14 through 15, you're going to see that when Paul leaves Philippi, they're the only ones to support him. They're the only ones helping him. Uh, and so they have a great love and affection for this man who came to preach the gospel to them and to spend his life poured out for them. And now, hearing of his imprisonment, uh, they are naturally concerned for their beloved apostle. And so what is his response? Well, if I had to summarize it, uh, this is really a summary in itself, but the gospel marches on, even despite my imprisonment. The whole force that Caesar put in order to keep me in chains, and all those who are in the city who serve him know why I am here. And furthermore, all those outside who believe have been encouraged because I'm in prison. That last part seems especially counterintuitive to us. Uh, If we think about secular movements in the world, uh, if some guerrilla group in the middle of uh, another nation was to rise up and then their head leader, their big macho was thrown into jail, what would most likely happen? Uh, all those who were following him would be terrified, and the movement would end. Uh, It's actually a very good way to deal with dissidents if you're a civil government. But that's not what happened uh, in the church of Jesus Christ. Paul is arrested, but the fervor doesn't die. Why? Well, I think there's at least two reasons. The first is that Paul's imprisonment actually confirms the reality of the work of God. 
his evangelical fervor behind bars, his continued endurance in the faith, his uncrushed spirit, they all display the workings of the spirit in Paul. If you were to fast forward to verse 20 in this section, he's showing this to be true, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. What an encouragement it was to the church uh, to see that the promises of God have teeth. That God will build his church and sustain his people as they seek first his kingdom. But there's something even more immediate, I think, going on. That every Christian everywhere, whether you're in prison or not, whether you are Paul or the Philippians or you're the congregation here this morning, need to understand what really fueled the boldness of those outside the church. You see, when I read verses 12 through 14, what strikes me is not what Paul says, it's what he doesn't say. If I was in prison, and you sent me a letter wondering how I was, uh, I would start on a long list of irritations and bothers about how hard my life was and how difficult my circumstances were. In fact, I'd probably write something like this. Dear brothers, I appreciate your tender heart towards me. It's been indeed very difficult. The food does nothing for my stomach. I have constant bowel problems. The floor is not overly damp, but the hardness makes it difficult for me to stand up in the morning. And the smell, oh, the smell, how vile the combination of body odor and waste. But God is still good. He is still good. It's that half-hearted nod to the sovereignty of God and his goodness that casual acknowledgement of his presence that doesn't exist in Paul's letter. He doesn't focus on himself and then tack on at the very end some tacit acknowledgement that God is somewhere in heaven doing what he pleases. No, you see, the savoring of Christ kept Paul and the church around him alive. And that's what you and I need to hear from what would otherwise just be a passing missionary statement. A summary of what Paul has been doing in the name of the Philippian donation. You see, what Paul does here is uh, not point out his life circumstances, as difficult as they are. But he takes the proclamation that he made in verse 8 through 11, and he says, Come, see, Christ really does grow righteous fruit so that we may love him and abound in joy, even in chains. That immediately connects what he has said before to what he's going to move on to. This week we were in Georgia, and uh, while we were at a conference, I received uh, multiple phone calls from people who are really suffering right now in life. I have a friend, perhaps my very best friend, who is trying to pastor a very difficult dying church in Kentucky. And they are showing little growth, little love for the Lord, and frankly, hostility towards his shepherding of them. And I have other friends who called me to tell me of difficulties in their family, struggles that are real and overwhelming and have made them distraught. And as I pondered even this Lord's Day, the difficulty that we have to love the Lord and love um, a sister and brother who proclaimed Christ in 
have fallen away. What we must do this afternoon is hard. Very hard. But these difficulties uh, reveal what really matters in our lives. What rules our life and determines our worship will come out when we're struggling. To be more, to be frankly more uh, direct, they reveal what we prefer. Is it God Himself? Is His glory and obedience to Him the most central, important thing to us, or is it all the treasures of the world? Where we tend to complain, where we tend to grumble, where we become angry or fearful. Those things we highlight when someone asks us, how are you? Those show the areas of our lives that aren't under the lordship of Jesus Christ. They reveal the sinful things that we really do crave more than God. They reveal our sin. And frankly, they reveal what we covet, what we worship falsely, what we blasphemously love over-savoring our sufficient Savior. All those plans you scurry off to, to create immediately uh, when you are led to fear or anger or worry, all those things that you think will solve all the problems outside of you, they're a roadmap to what our hearts actually trust in. They're road signs pointing to our high places of worship. When they don't point to the Lord, uh, it is a travesty. So if you walk away with nothing else from this particular point, let it be this. It does not ultimately matter what we profess with our lips alone when things don't go the way that we have planned or desired. It's what we actually cling to for hope and for healing and for satisfaction What serves functionally as our God is our God. But thanks be the Lord that he doesn't leave us that way. Paul here gives us a template of how to deal with sufferings or difficulties for those who can freely admit our own weakness and frailty and sinfulness. Paul is a guide here. Not that Paul was sinless, not that he was the Lord Jesus Christ, but that he responds in a different way than you and I would normally respond. And I warn you, what Paul is going to have to say to us is not flashy or hip. He's not going to give you ten ways in which you can make the best out of your imprisonment. Nine ways that you can overcome the sinful stubbornness of your heart. No, instead taking the prayer of Philippians 1, 9 through 11. And then his example here, Paul says this, Christ must satisfy your soul. You need your sinful affections pushed out by a greater love. And Lord willing, maybe one day I'll get to preach to you from my favorite chapter, perhaps in the whole Bible, but certainly from Philippians is chapter 3. Verses 9 through 11. But let me give you a preview of what he says there here. Christ must so occupy your heart, so occupy your heart, that every other thing fades into nothingness. 
That's hard. That's, that's very hard. Those things which seem to matter so much here and now, comfort, ease, uh, uh, what we might call the good life, health, a day without pain, uh, children who are obedient, a husband or a wife who uh, just falls in line, a job that we want, the dreams to be fulfilled. Every other thing that leads us to look to our, our treasured pet desires, they must give way to something far better, the precious Lord Jesus Christ. But how does that happen? How does that happen? I, I don't think any of us, if we are sober-minded, could say where, we're at, where Paul is. And Paul wasn't always there either. So how do we go from recognizing our real problem does not exist outside of us in all of our circumstances and all the things that aren't going our way, and instead that our hearts need to tend towards humble contentment in Christ, whatever may occur. Well, it happens at God's ordained place, through God's ordained means, forgiving and strengthening faith. It occurs during the preaching of the word of God on the Lord's day in the local church. And you cannot love what you do not trust. That's just simply the truth. So let's look together at how we come to receive or grow in that trust in Christ. If it's this central, then we need to answer this question. So point two, gospel preaching and faith. If it's gospel preaching that Paul has come to find such joy in, then we need to see what uh, gospel preaching does for us. With Paul in chains, uh, a couple questions would have immediately come to mind to the congregation in Philippi. The first is, and we've already answered it, how are you, Paul? How are you? That's a hard place to be. But the second is, who's taking care of the church in your absence? They, they love Paul. But they love more the work that Paul is doing because it's the work of Christ. It's planting churches. And so, what is going on, Paul, while you're behind bars? Well, uh, Paul elaborates the statement he makes in verse 14. There's these men out there who are boldly preaching the word without fear. But uh, he then takes that group of people and divides them in two. On the one hand, there's a group out there that clearly recognize Uh, that Paul's ministry comes from God. They're preaching Christ because they love Paul, because they love Christ. And uh, although they're not sinless, uh, they are uh, preaching Christ with unfeigned motives. They want to honor Paul by loving Paul, doing what Paul loved the most, preaching Christ and Christ crucified. They're preaching the same gospel outside of the jail that Paul is now preaching inside the jail. But on the other hand, there's another group that exists uh, that are preaching uh, Christ, but they have envy in their heart. Now, this envy is probably directed directly towards Paul, thus the reason why 
Paul says here that they are seeking somehow to inflict pain on Paul. It's very possible that they saw Paul and all of the praise that Paul got everywhere that he went and desired some of that for themselves. Uh, A great name. I can think of many men that I have known who have occupied the pulpit and have great dreams of being the next John Piper or R.C. Sproul. It's something akin to that. And now that Paul, who is the cream of the crop, perhaps uh, wrongfully thinking so that Paul is this great Christian leader at the top of the ladder. Now that he's gone, there's room for someone to step up. And so what do they do? They preach like Paul, the message of Paul, and they do so more fervently than ever to say, see, we can do it too, with even more fervor and gusto. And so there's these two groups that exist. Now, What seems so very unnatural, then, is what Paul does next. In the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, when there's a divide in the church, Paul uh, seems to go all the length he possibly can to address the divide. He condemns everyone who is separating themselves within the body of Christ, making divisions. Paul doesn't do that here. It's very unusual. Why would Paul, when it comes to the church in Corinth, uh, adamantly say uh, over and over again that what they're doing is sinful and destroying the bride of Christ, but here he does not do so? Well, I think Paul wants to make a point, not that he is approving of what these rivalrous, envious envious men are doing, but uh, he wants to make a point, and this is so crucial to answering that question we asked just a moment ago. And his point is this, that Paul is more concerned with the message than the man. He's more concerned with the message than the man. Now, certainly I have to qualify that statement. If we look at the text carefully, Paul doesn't say he just approves of any man who claims to be preaching. What is it that both groups are doing? They're preaching Christ. Paul's not just rubber stamping anybody who would get in a pulpit and saying, anybody in a pulpit with any message is good enough for me. No, he's quite clear. These men are preaching Christ. And if you actually look back at verse 14, even these rivalrous, envious people he calls brothers. Well, what impact might that have? Well, it's this. They believe the same thing Paul believes. They believe that, uh, the, that man is sinful and stands before a holy God. They believe that the law condemns everyone to eternal hell. They believe that it is by justification through faith alone in Christ alone that saves. They believe that God is triune. They believe all the central tenets of Christianity. The message is the same between both. So Paul doesn't ever approve of a heretical message, a sermon preached that is not focused on Christ. Doing so would dishonor God and break all of the first four commandments. But Paul instead answers a question that you probably have had in the past 
but may not have been able to articulate very well. And it's a question that the church has wrestled with on occasion throughout history, which is this. Can God deliver his word with power and effectiveness to his people through a sinful man? Can he do it? Well, some in the past have said no, that that's not possible. And in fact, if you know anything of the Catholic Church, the priest who stands before the body who offers the homily or the, what we would call the sermon and the sacraments must be autos Christos. He must be another Christ. For them, he becomes Christ incarnate before them to offer the word and the sacrament that it might be effectual for them. Need I say that that is blasphemous? But it's also not necessary. Paul wants to quell that fear in the church. If Paul is gone, this man of this paragon of godliness is gone, and now all they have is some second-rate Christian, in their mind perhaps, standing in the pulpit, what good is that? Well, we read this morning the story of Balaam, of Baor, who uh, was, by all accounts, a pagan, but the Lord occasionally spoke through. And Balak calls him to curse God's people. And Balaam is enticed to do so. Why? Because as we learn in the New Testament, he loves riches. He has sordid gain in his heart. But when he comes... He comes to curse them. What happens? The Lord puts his words in the mouth of the prophet, and he is unable to curse God's people. In fact, what happens is a blessing is given. You see, what's most determinative when the word of God is preached is not the man. We don't want to make an excuse for the man. The man is not right in what he does if he comes to this pulpit. Uh, not full of the Holy Spirit and not seeking to preach uh, Christ crucified from pure motives. But the reality is, he's not determinative of what happens. Now, Balaam will leave the, the preaching of God's word and he'll lead Israel astray. That's true. It shows Balaam's heart. But what's immediately applicable to us right now in this morning and was a concern for the Philippians is this. What makes the message coming from the pulpit effectual for you? You come here every Lord's Day morning looking for something. How is that going to minister to your heart? How does Sunday morning, to answer the question before, How does the Sunday morning preaching fan the flames of your love for Christ so that the desire for sin fades? Again, the answer is not complicated. It's really not. But it's highly offensive to our hearts. Highly offensive to our hearts. And you're not going to like the answer that I give. I know because my heart doesn't either. And so I'm going to tell you what it is. But I'm going to tell you what your heart's going to say first. It's going to say, lying to you, it's too simple. It's going to declare it's not practical. Or, maybe worse, you'll nod your head in agreement and then go away from here and it will affect you not at all. 
warn you to be careful. Because on this principle hangs every Lord's Day. And every Lord's Day is eventually determinative of your soul. Paul wants us to be extremely confident that it's Christ preached, joined with faith in him, that's determinative for our growing in love and right obedience. It's faith in Christ joined with the word preached. Our Baptist catechism uh, says this in question 64. Since faith alone make us partakers of Christ and his benefit, from where does this faith come from? From the Holy Spirit, who kindles it in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel. Not just hearing a gospel somewhere on the street, but the preaching of the gospel and other ordinances, and it's confirmed by the use of the sacraments. Faith for Christ is born, is sustained, and it's fed on the Lord's day as you hear the word preached, joined by faith. And so you get faith when the Holy Spirit is is preaching the word to your hearts from the pulpit, and your faith grows as you take that faith and apply it to what you're hearing every Sunday morning. Now there's a slight problem with that, the answer in the confession. It's this, the first half is you and I have no control over that. We cannot force the Spirit to do or to demand Him to do what He has just said. That's kind of scary. If the Holy Spirit must join Himself to the Word, that's the first half of making the Word preach effectual, and we can't do that, well, that would cause anxiety in my heart. But what we have to do is focus on the second half of that. We must believe or have faith that God will do what he has promised when the word is preached. We must trust that the Holy Spirit will join himself to the word of Christ preached and that it will be effectual for our hearts. We come here Sunday morning trusting that the Spirit of God will speak Christ to our hearts because this pleases the Father. We have to believe on God's mercy, on his desire to be with his people, his love for us, his desire to dwell with us and do for us what is for our good and what is the greatest good for us than to hold out Christ for us and say, see, Savior, partake. The preaching on Sunday morning will have no effect in your heart if you don't join it with faith. You will never come to see Christ as ultimately valuable, precious, worthy, worthy of consuming all of your life, all of your thoughts, all of your desires, without hearing his word by faith on the Lord's day. Where do we get that faith? Paul says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You must come to the preached word to receive faith and you must come in faith to the preached word to grow in faith. Now, if you're like me, you're probably chomping at the bit. I don't like it when I'm told just to believe. I want to do something. I want to contribute something. 
Well, you know the only work that you can do? The only work that you can do to further that work? Jesus Christ tells us in John 6, 29. It's this. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. There's no escaping the reality that we must come here by faith, trusting the Lord. So we can't earn in any way Christ or his benefits. And we can't, just to make clear, growing in faith, growing out of sin into practical holiness, putting off sin and putting on Christ, that's a benefit of Christ. We can't earn any of that. All of that, is all that's left for us is to believe. But there are some things, some things, that can further our ability to focus on that and that alone. I'm going to give you four. Please don't see this as a list of things to do. But as, as a way to Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The first is the Lord's Day must be a priority. Not just a priority, the priority. You cannot uh, hear with faith if you're not here at all. With rare exception, no other thing, not even a good thing, should prevent you from being present under the preaching of the word of God. You need to recognize that this is God's normative means, that's his normal means, his ordained means of creating and strengthening your faith. Nothing, nothing else is like this. Second, you should prepare for the Lord's Day throughout the whole week. That includes what so often trips us up. I know it does, especially when you have four children. Uh, Preparing for your physical needs and your family's physical needs the day before the Lord's Day. Do all your shopping during the week. Fill up your gas tank on Saturday. Lay out your clothes. Plan your meals. Do everything to be here, to be here on time so that when the service starts, because that's when the word preaching starts, that you're here and that you can participate. Third, going along with the same thing, perhaps the greatest preparation throughout the week is this, to pray. Beg the Lord to mercifully reveal himself to you through his word on the Lord's day. Entreat God to provide a Christ-exalting message to you. Ask that he reveal your sin, that he'd grant you repentance, that you would grow in faith, that through the word preached, you would have your love fanned. Confess to the Lord your lack of love and desire for Christ. Tell him how much the Lord's day seems to pale in comparison with everything else that the world offers. But above all, don't seek asking him to make Christ more precious to you than anything else through the means that God has promised to work through. Fourth, and this one might seem odd, especially in the midst of COVID, where there seems to be so many other options that are given to us, but this is crucial. Recognize that the context that God does this in is the local church. He does this when the saints assemble, that is what it means to be a church, to hear the word preached, read, sent.
sung. God didn't ordain this through a podcast or a YouTube video or a live stream or a book or a class. Those things have their place. They can be good for us. But they're no replacement for what happens on the Lord's Day, gathered together, physically present, hearing the word preached. When you are with the people that you have covenanted with before the Lord, something different happens than when you're on your own. could say much more, but I think these are a solid beginning to treasuring the Lord's Day. And treasuring the Lord's Day and the preached word will lead to treasuring Christ. So let's turn to the final point, and I'll try to be brief. I might for once not preach a uh, 90-minute sermon. Point number three, gospel preaching and joy. At the end of this, let's observe how refreshing Paul's word comes to us. Paul is for something, and he's for it in a big way. Uh, Today we hear so often how Christians are against everything. We're against uh, people's choices with their bodies. We're we're against different definitions of love. Well, here Paul is for something, and he's going to assert it. Paul's for joy. Paul's really about joy. And for Paul, there's an equal sign between joy and something else, and that's Christ Jesus. Although Paul will spend pretty much the rest of this chapter, and I would argue the rest of the book, discussing joy, it's here he states plainly where joy comes from in the context of the local church, the local congregation. Paul knows that joy uh, goes forward when the word of God goes forth because the Savior is offered up. He's offered up as sufficient, as satisfying, as savory. He's the Lord who enraptures the soul. He makes light the burdens of life. He draws out praise to God and glory for his name. Preaching Christ offers up our Savior to the lost. To place their hope in him alone. Showing that the great King Jesus is worthy. It also strengthens the faith of those who believe in him already so that they might have greater confidence in him, assurance in his love towards them, faith in his person and work. Again, this glorifies his Lord. You see, Paul understands his purpose, which is really all of our purposes. That's to make much of Christ. And preaching fulfills that purpose. It makes Paul whole. It brings him joy. I wonder how often we stop to consider that what we do here on Sunday is a fount of joy. We are made for God's good pleasure to glorify his name. And like a train that isn't on its track, we can't fulfill that purpose when we're not here. He tells us how to glorify his name in his law, which a brother so helpfully reminded me yesterday is summarized by the love of God and the love of neighbor. 
But what greater place do those two things happen than here? By hearing the preached word of Christ by faith, we immediately fulfill the first four commandments. We worship God alone. We worship him as he directs. That's the second commandment. We take his name and treat it as something sacred and worthy of praise. That's the third. And we make holy the Sabbath, which is the fourth. But we also fulfill the second table of the law. All those things that are meant to drive us to look at loving our neighbor. That seems strange, doesn't it? But let me explain. First, by being here, you proclaim to each other our need to submit to authority. First and foremost, God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, who rules over his church, but also the triune God who rules over all creation. Second, we come together and we show that the Lord propagates and values life. And not just physical life, which he does, but spiritual life, true life. We encourage each other to spiritual fidelity or faithfulness, encouraging one another just by being here, by singing to the Lord, not to adulterate against God. That when we're here together and we partake of the word and the prayers of the saints of the sacraments and all that God has given to us, we are actually partaking in God's bountiful blessing on us, his endless stream of giving, for God is not stingy. And he does not steal. And we confirm the fountain of truth that God is not a liar. That what he says about the Lord's day, what he says about his son is true and good. And finally, what has immediate implication to this text, we declare to one another that we can have everything we need in Christ. That there is no need to crave or to look to any other fountain. That is what is giving Paul so much joy. And where else can we have all of this but on the Lord's day? With the Lord's people, as we hear Jesus preached to our desperately needy hearts. Brothers and sisters, this is joy raining down on us. I want to close with one final thought. In chapter 3 of Philippians, Paul will eventually speak a whole lot more of the riches of Christ. But he freely holds out to us when he is preached the blessing of being an elder and spending time in this congregation as I've got to know some of your hearts and to know them well. Many of you are timid towards the Lord. You see yourself as too lowly for him and your sins too many or too great. You might say to yourself, oh, this overflowing joy that Paul's offers, it's for, it's for all the others, but not for me. Christ will deal with me based on my sin. Yes, his promises are there and he'll give me grace, but it will be the barest of grace, the smallest measure of joy. I will, as I have heard it said to me before, just barely get into the door of heaven. 
Brothers and sisters, do not say such things about our Savior. He does not come to you offering himself begrudgingly. He went willing and full of joy to the cross that he may save sinners like you and I. Excuse me. He doesn't withhold anything from his people. Nothing. Rather, even now, he intercedes that all he possesses, this is what he's praying for us, all he possesses might be yours, including the fullness of joy he knew as the incarnate man, the God-man, when he followed his Father and could say, the Father is well pleased in me, and I rejoice in him. It may be true that your sins are many, And they weigh you down greatly. But your Savior is greater than all of your sins. And he is greater. The work he has done is more complete than the corruption that Adam caused when he ate of the fruit in the garden. Yes. Our souls are desperate. Our hearts are desperately wicked. Desire evil things. And yes. We have an obligation to obey God's law and to turn from sin and to, and to embrace him and to obey. That happens when we see our Savior as what he really is. The incarnate mercy and love of God towards us who are the least worthy. Do you realize when you tell yourself that indeed I am the greatest of sinner, you are exactly where the Lord Jesus wants you to be. Because he came to die for sinners like that. Look to him now and receive from him grace upon grace, hope upon hope, joy upon joy. I encourage you, by faith, come to say with Paul that when Christ is proclaimed, it is for you joy. Let us rejoice and let us pray.